House of Nourishment. I am Chelsea Connor, your host. It is exactly 11, 11 a.m. right now. I'm recording this on Sunday, uh, June 4th, 2023, <laughs> in case you wanted to know. Um, yeah, welcome back. I am really excited for this episode. I feel like I say that about every episode. But <laughs> I guess it's a good sign that um, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Um, but today we have on my dear friend, Krista Mayfield, and Krista comes from seven plus years of working in the anti-trafficking space. She worked for Unbound Houston, which is an awesome organization out of Houston, Texas, that essentially helps, supports, works with um, victims of trafficking. Krista is also a health and nutrition coach, and so while working in that space, she just saw this huge need for really just nourishment to social service providers or really just any service providers. And so from her own experiences, from seeing what other people were experiencing, she decided to actually start Good Sustained, which she is now the founder of. And Good Sustained allows her to coach and support those who are supporting victims or doing doing the really difficult work of working with people and situations that come with a lot of trauma. So I've been so excited to bring her on the podcast and have a conversation with her because number one, I feel like this this idea of supporting people that are in service positions is not really talked about that much. And I just love her perspective on this topic, the way that she breaks things down just blows my mind. You will hear in this conversation, there are so many times when she's done talking where I'm just speechless. Like, (laughs) she's incredible. She's really become a expert at supporting people and also breaking things down and seeing them in a new way, in a way that really gets to the root of the issues of the burnout of, um, the, the things that people in this industry are truly facing and can actually not just fix, but, but nourish, nourish and be able to show up to serve others from a place of overflow and not a place of overextending. Um, and number two, I just love everything she has to share because not only does it, of course, apply to those in uh, service positions, but it is so applicable and true for really all of us, especially mothers, um, people who maybe have taken on kind of like the people pleaser role in their life, the the helper, the fixer. Um, I am one of those people. <laughs> you will hear in this episode, she actually flips the script on me at one point and kind of coaches me and I get vulnerable. Um, it was It was really good. And I can only imagine that there are many others who can relate to what I shared, what Krista shares, um, and just these topics overall. So whether you are in the social services or any kind of service position or not, these concepts that Krista talks about that we both discuss are really applicable to probably everyone in one way or another. So enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think in my DMs on Instagram. 
Also, I would be so, so, so grateful if you have enjoyed this podcast, whether it's just this episode or any other episodes that we've uploaded so far. I would love if you shared a review. We're on Apple and Spotify right now, and I think we're probably going to just stick to those two, but leaving a star review or a written review, whatever it is and feels, of course, true for you would be so helpful and so deeply appreciated. Reviews for the podcast are kind of like reviews for a product. You know, if you see a product with lots of great reviews, then you're more likely to probably try it. I know I'm definitely someone who before I buy almost anything, I will like read all the reviews. So really just leaving a review, sharing your thoughts and experience with this podcast just helps others who maybe haven't listened yet um, be able to press play and listen for themselves. So would hugely appreciate that if that's something you'd like to do. Without further ado, I think that is everything. Enjoy this conversation with my dear friend, Krista Mayfield. Oh my gosh, Krista. I'm so happy to have you here. It is so good to have you. This has been a long time coming. You were supposed to be on in like December or January, back when I was supposed to start the podcast, and (laughs) I did not. (laughs) But we made it back. We're here now in May, the end of May. So it wasn't too long. Um, And now you're here. And I'm so glad that we waited, actually. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I'm really glad because I know that I think personally I needed, you know, to get to a different place mentally, but I also think that you have just like completely blossomed in in your new business and what you're doing and your heart behind it. Um, Not that I think it's really changed much. I think it's been pretty on fire since the beginning, but I'm just so excited to hear how it's going what what it is, what you're doing, and just share share the good word of good sustained your business. So I think to start, I would just love to hear how you got to your business and what it is that you do. Yay. Well, first, thank you. I'm so excited. Yeah. And to the House of Nourishment podcast listener, um, I have been a longtime follower of Chelsea. And so to get to not just talk to you, but to share this conversation with a community that you've built that I've been a part of since I think like, I don't, 2017, 2018, it was back can when I, you started Kismet. Yeah. Can I just like share something really quick that yes. I'm pretty sure the way we met is you were a Kismet Cacao customer. And you had Mm -hmm. a problem with one of your shipments. Like it didn't get to your house or we couldn't find it. And you had emailed me. And I was like, oh, okay, this girl in Texas. And I was like trying to get a hold of the post office, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, long story short, we continued talking. And now we're actual friends. (laughs) Oh, no. I love it. So crazy. But anyways, continue. I no seriously I I love it and your your content has been such a gift in my life and I'll kind of probably we'll probably talk about that today too of just like the way that you framed nourishment and talked about women eating enough and nourishing themselves and working on breath work like some of those your card pulls like some of those moments that have just been like the stepping stones of you building your service to the world have impacted me. 
and are part of my journey and my story. And so it's just an honor to get to share this story with you because you play a role in that. So thank you. I'm excited. Yes. Thank you. So you asked, you know, how I got to my business, which is called Good Sustained. So what I have built and I am building in this moment is a, it's a working title. Well, the business name is there, but I don't, I'm like, how do you describe this? But I do workplace wellness consulting slash staff sustainability consulting for social service providers, specifically service providers that serve individuals that have experienced complex trauma. Hmm. A lot of words, but essentially people that work in the human trafficking space, domestic violence, SA or sexual assault, Hmm. um, people that work with those experiencing homelessness, children in the foster care system, law enforcement. So people that are in that social work, social service space, and they're working with people who have come from really hard things. Um, I worked in the human trafficking field for about seven and a half years in an amazing nonprofit. And it was such a gift and I had an amazing experience and I learned so much and they are a beautiful organization and a beautiful team. And it was hard. Hmm. It was hard work. I had leaders I could trust and a team I loved and it was still really hard and not everybody has that experience. And so it was through my experience serving in that field, experiencing secondhand trauma, um, seeing my health deteriorate, my relationships kind of become non-existent or just really unhealthy that I started to ask the question, does it have to be this way? Like, I know this is hard. And at the time, there was this glorification of the stress of the hard work. And it was like, the less you sleep and the more events you miss, then you're really in it. Like, you really care if the rest of your life sucks. And I was just like, I don't I don't know about that. I don't think so. And so as I was working in that field, I started asking a lot of questions. Why do I feel this way? Does it have to be this way? And what I kind of came, I came to a lot of conclusions. Um, The biggest of which was that the way I was engaging in this work was not healthy. And I can't speak for everyone, but I was looking at my own motivations and I was looking at my own thought processes and um, behaviors and realizing that they're coming from a place of codependence. They're coming from a place of perfectionism. They're coming from a place of trying to prove myself and that will always be draining. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that the way that we engage in this work is what makes it stressful, not necessarily, not always just the stress itself. Um, But then I I looked at our system and how we, as, you know, the system approach the concept of helping other people. And I just was like, man, I'm seeing some holes here that um, in the end are not actually empowering. We're not um, across the board, right? As again, as a social service kind of system, as, as these systems play out, they're not always 
centered on empowering the people we serve and restoring their autonomy and believing that they have strength. And there's a lot of talk about strength-based approach and we're trying, but there's something about human nature that makes that really sticky. And so I, I was noticing these things and then was also, again, very burnt out, exhausted, ready for a change. And so in 2019, I enrolled in the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and became a certified health coach because I loved health and wellness and had always been passionate about it. I was, you know, the resident health nut in my community. People knew like Krista's crunchy, Krista does essential oils and makes her own toothpaste and is vegetarian and vegan. And I just had the reputation for being like the veggie girl and um, graduated with my certification, started seeing one-on-one clients, loved it. It was the best thing ever. Um, And then at the end of 2022, had an opportunity to make a transition and, you know, leaving the human trafficking space, I was like, oh my gosh, I could do anything else. And I am a multi-passionate person. I have a lot of dreams and working in human trafficking was never one of them. And so I was like, I can do anything I want. But I saw a need in this space. And I, you know, after almost eight years, I loved this community. I loved my clients. I loved my coworkers, the the people that I was working with from other organizations and agencies. I saw that they were incredible people who were passionate and driven and you know, had so many dreams to better the world and they were exhausted and burnt out and tired and sick. And I just saw an opportunity. I, you know, I saw a need, I had a skill set, I had some thoughts and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try this. And so I started Good Sustained as a way to fill in a gap that I saw in that social service space where we're so committed as a movement to caring for those in our community that need support, but there is no built-in support system for the providers. And that's a big problem on a lot of levels. And maybe we can talk about that later, but Mm. that is how I came to start Good Sustained. And it's been a really beautiful journey. And I'm so proud of the people that I'm working with now, my clients that are willing to say, we need help. And we're willing to slow down and invest into our team, invest back into ourselves because we're not superheroes. The humility that that takes, the strength that that takes is incredible. And so it's just been a huge honor to be trusted by this community and, and have people invite me and to support them. And I'm excited to see where it goes. That's amazing, Krista. Wow. Gosh, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about from just that piece that you shared with us. Um, But the first thing that's really coming to mind for me is I actually have not really shared this before, but online or anything, Um, but my parents are police officers. So Mm. they're service providers in that way. And um, they're actually retired, but they were police officers. And it's so true what you said about kind of this role that you almost slip into when you're a service provider or when you are someone who witnesses pretty intense trauma, right? Or um, mm-hmm. I think I've heard you mention even like secondhand trauma, right? 
And you kind of slip into this archetype of hero, of superhuman in a way. And you learn how to com- compartmentalize. And I don't even know if it if it happens really that successfully for people. I, I would imagine, like you mentioned, um, it sounds like there's a lot of people that experience burnout in that position because it is hard to, I mean, how do you take yourself completely out of an experience where you're hearing about someone else's trauma, you're witnessing trauma, you know, whatever it might be. And I know that, um, I don't know a ton, but I know a little bit that my parents had mentioned there was like, I don't know, I think some therapy that was offered and things like that in their job. Um, and I think, you know, I've even done breath work, little like workshops for different corporations and things like that. But it really does seem like there is a need for for like pouring back into these people who are putting so much out. They're like giving so much. Um, and so I, I just love what you're doing because I think it is so incredibly needed. And I know even beyond the communities that you work with, just this like general idea of tending to ourselves especially if we identify with the role of being like a caregiver in any capacity, even as like a mother, right? Or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just a human on this planet with all the things that happen. Um, So kind of with that said, I'm curious, where, where do you start with people that you work with? Like where, what, how do you start to not just be like, okay, So try these breathwork techniques or like maybe, um, you know, make sure you're getting your fruits and vegetables, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. um, simple things like that. But where where do you really start? Like what is really at the root of why people maybe are overgiving or not tending to themselves? Yes, this is where I live. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so, you know, now I, I will say that where I start with my clients is where they want me to start as which is again how social services should be (laughs) because we are serving the empowerment and autonomy of someone else which is all about reflecting their power back to them and saying Mm. what do you want you can do this teaching them and helping them to be their own guide that's what we do with our clients And that's, you know, as a service provider, that's my job is to support you and your vision. So in my individual practice work, that's what that looks like. However, um, you know, like you said, I've I've been to those trainings where we had a, you know, stress management or self-care, you know, workshop. And it was, you know, here's a, and they're good, helpful, practical, proven tips to regulate your nervous system and, you know, manage your stress in the moment. But it's all about what I heard was managing your stress. Mm. And what then I interpreted or inferred from that is you're going to burn out. The the fuse is lit and time is ticking. Um, Here's how you can extend your fuse. But no one was saying like, we don't want you to burn out and explode. Like that's not the vision. Nobody was saying that. And especially when it comes from your employers or, you know, an organization, 
it's kind of just like, how can you stay sane enough to do your job? And as a human being, it's easy to, to, to hear that or to feel that, even if it's not what they meant, to feel that and feel like you are not valued as a person. And so as I was asking these, those questions of why is it this hard? Does it have to be this hard? Um, I noticed that we're having a lot of talk about stress management, but no one's asking the question, why are we this stressed? And can we do things differently so that we don't get to this position? And so, like you said, a lot of that comes from our beliefs and our perceptions. And I, as a you know a health coach, I, I love and I teach my clients how to do breath work, how to eat to nourish their nervous system. But I will always come back to your belief system because how you believe, you act. And if you look at how you're acting, you will then quickly discover what it is that you truly believe, not what you think you believe or say you believe, but what your nervous system believes is true. Um, is how you will play out your everyday behaviors. And that's where I start on a, a theoretical conceptual level is I'm having these conversations where we're talking about, um, do we believe that we're the hero? Do we think that it's our responsibility to step into someone's story and make a difference? And I, I, I have a love and hate relationship with that phrase because outcomes are so outside of our control and we can only show up, you know, all we have control over is what we do. And as a service provider who's coming in, especially to someone who's experienced pain or like your parents, right? Where it's just trauma left and right, things that humans should never do to each other. They're the ones that get called out. You see it first. Mm -hmm. If you are on call with a, a hotline of some kind, that horrific moment for that person, now you've just entered that space. Mm -hmm. And that is hard. Mm -hmm. But then how we think about ourselves in that moment can is then kind of what differs between how our nervous system responds. And I noticed in myself and in, you know, the conversations that we're having and the movement at large, um, man, it's so easy. It is so easy to hear that it's not our job to save people, to hear that we're not the saviors, but to feel like it because you want better for them than what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You want them to get better and you want to do everything possible to get them to that place where they are and this is where we kind of need some self-awareness because what we do is we project our own idea of health. We want to get them to our idea of a good place, our idea of a healthy place. And when they choose to go back to painful situations or when they don't take your advice or when they um, make mistakes or they ghost you, those or they go back to their situations and then something really bad happens to them. Those can feel like our responsibility if we are internalizing that their outcome is up to us. And I think that's where that hero system kind of plays in. 
because we want them to change. But I think what I have learned, especially about healing from abuse specifically, I would say healing from abuse takes two things. One, it is the restoration of someone's autonomy. It is not feeling better, functioning better. It is their autonomy being restored, which means that as their helper, as their, you know, social worker, as an advocate, my job is to constantly be giving you choice, to constantly be allowing you to make the decisions and, and call the shots. It doesn't mean you can run over me. We have boundaries and we're teaching healthy relationship, but it's not to get you to a shelter. It's not to get you into therapy. It's not to get you out of the life or out of that relationship. It is not to get you to do anything. It is to show you, you have power over your own choices and you can do this. And I'm going to be here for you to support you, but this is your story. You can do this and whatever you want and whatever you choose to do, I'm going to be here for you. I might not be able to give you everything and I can't let you run over me, but I'm going to be in your corner every step of the way. But this is your story and you call the shots. That is beautiful and helpful, but it's also really vulnerable because then you care and you care a lot about this person and you want the best for them. And when they make mistakes, you have to be willing to accept that. And that comes with a lot of grief. And so I, I think I noticed that there's, I could literally just ramble for on this forever because I think I found myself so steeped in some of these mentalities, but, um, it comes back to who do we believe that we are? How do we see ourselves in this story? And the way that we see ourselves in this story plays a big role in how we experience the stress. And I like to say like this work is hard. I'm not here to make this work not hard because it's supposed to be hard. Injustice is hard. Crime is hard. Violence, you know, those things will never be easy and they should always move us. We should always be impacted by those things. We can never become numb. They are harmful, inherently harmful. And so to work in this space, we have signed up for a life of, of pain and sadness. Like that's going to come with the territory. And it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it sometimes. And a lot of the stress and the trauma that we feel comes from how we engage in this work and the systems in play that we're up against, that we're trying to navigate, that make it more challenging than it needs to be. And that's where I want to work. I can't make injustice any less hard, but I can come alongside you and support you. I can help you find the ways that maybe your schedule could be easier, your team communication could be better, your team relationships could be improved so that we're not adding unnecessary stress to an already really difficult field. So you're really like, as well as maybe removing some stressors, adding some ease into the physical operations of things, mm -hmm. you're also... I guess for lack of a better word, kind of like attacking or really getting to the root of the psychological stress that happens through, you know, of course, there's going to be the stress of just witnessing 
mm-hmm. uh, trauma and caring about people that have are having this trauma done to them. Um, but also the beliefs that the actual service providers come into the work with. Yes. So these these beliefs around, you know, and I, gosh, I can completely relate to this. I've never worked in a uh, a job like this, but I can completely relate to uh, the people pleaser kind of archetype and the overextender, the um, putting people before yourself because it feels good in a way, right? Um, mm-hmm. It almost is like a form of validation that I yeah. think people receive. And and it's almost, or not almost, it usually is unconscious. It's something we're mm-hmm. not even realizing we're doing. We don't mean to come in and make it, I mean, because I don't, I don't mean to sound like callous in any way, but I think um, something that I have gotten really honest with myself about is when, when I am like people pleasing, when I am overextending, when I'm trying to like really show like, oh, woe is me. Like, look how hard I worked. Like I, you know, put my all and I'm just exhausted now. I'm burnt out, blah, blah, blah. Like that, that was my story for a long time. And that actually made me the center of attention in some of those situations. And not to say that that's what these people are doing, but I think sometimes in those dynamics, we don't realize that's kind of like what ends up happening is we, we're really receiving the validation of that. Right. Um, So I think that's really incredible that you're, you're going as deep as like the literal subconscious beliefs that people have around this work so that they're able to show up for the work without projecting, without um, mm-hmm. without it being about the role they play in it. Because that's, I guess that's kind of what I was getting at with, with my example was like taking ourselves out of it and then, and literally just focusing on the person in front of us and, and restoring the autonomy there. Yeah. I think that's huge. Like I have not ever really heard it laid out that way um, in the way of helping victims restore their autonomy. Like, I guess I didn't even really comprehend or ever think about the fact that the reason maybe some of those people are in those situations, of course, not children and things like that, but but able-bodied adults maybe are because their autonomy isn't quite um, built up like it could be. And that's that's what's keeping them there. So... I just find that incredible, incredibly interesting. I kind of want to get into the physical parts of being in this work. And um, again, that secondhand trauma. And I think that's how you had mentioned it. I can't remember exactly. But and then the physical like burnout is is that really common in this work? Mm. Yes, very. And in my field, specifically the human trafficking space, especially with direct service providers, so those that are working directly with those that have gone through this, um, I mean, the turnover rate is wildly high. But if you if you make it two years as an advocate, you are – well, I, I, as I say that, I'm like, how do I know that many people? I don't know if I know anyone. Wow. In, in in the type of role of advocacy that my organization did. Now, I do know that there are a lot of people that have been in this field for years, sure. decades. Um, 
and people that have done direct service for decades. But in terms of the like, be on the hotline. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing across the board t- turnover, you know, six months, eight months, a year. A year is very common. They do this job for a year and then they're out. They do this job for maybe 18 months or two years and then they're out. Um, again, there are people that stay longer and do this longer. And a lot of those people actually, I'm trying to like think most of the people that have stayed in longer are those with lived experience themselves. Mm. Um, and they have built up an incredible amount of resilience. And because they've lived through it, I think the ones I'm thinking of, I, I and have had conversations with, um, come at this work in a much more empowering way because they know what it meant for them. They lived it. And I think they do a better job of, being hands off and restoring autonomy and being a supportive guide on the side rather than the superhero. Cause they know that no one made them change. You know, they know that they did it. Um, so yes, the, there is a very physical presence of burnout, but I think what's really interesting about burnout in general is that when you, when you say it, it sounds like, you know, you've just like skidded on the road and you've come to like a screeching halt. Um, but in reality, you keep going (laughs) like there, you can be burnt out and you still show up to work and you're still seeing clients and you're still working with juveniles on probation or you're still making arrests, right? Like you keep doing your job but your mental emotional capacity to engage with that person and i think maybe even take ownership of how you're doing your job is just gone mm-hmm. and that is dangerous because we are working with the most vulnerable people in our communities we cannot afford to show up with nothing to give. Mm -hmm. And I think systematically, the big problem that I see is that service providers, social service providers are expected to keep showing up and to keep giving and, you know, work crazy amount of hours for very little pay. You know, there's, everyone jokes, well, I'm not in this for the money. Like it's common knowledge that these positions do not pay well, that you're in it because you're passionate about it. And that's fine. But I think it, to me, it begs the question, why, why are we not giving these people in our community, kids in the foster care system, um, you know, those experiencing violence, why are, why are we giving them the least of what society has to offer. Mm. Um, and I, people ask the question, well, you know, do, do people really value the role of a social worker or society just doesn't care about what we do? And I, I actually don't think that's true. I'm worried that the amount of pay that social workers receive or don't receive, um, the amount of hours they're asked to give the conditions they're told to work in, um, is more of a reflection on how society values the people that we serve. 
-hmm. And that is ultimately why I'm doing this job because they deserve the best. We send our surgeons in fired up, ready to go, having slept, right? Like that they, our truck drivers have to sleep. Our law enforcement officers need to sleep. Our social workers and advocates need to sleep. We need to be sending in nourished, balanced, paid, supported, resourced social service providers to work with these people because they're valuable and they're precious. And to send people that have just given everything and are still showing up with nothing to give and just scraping the bottom of the barrel, um, it's just not okay. And that's what most people are left to do. Now, we as providers also have autonomy and we can decide how we show up, but we are kicking against the goads. Like we're fighting a system in a lot of ways and that's hard and painful. And sometimes we don't have the energy to do that because we've been fighting the system of injustice. Like we don't need to be also fighting our own organizational systems as a whole, right? But the burnout that I have seen and witnessed and experienced is so real. And what we're also noticing as as a field is that um, those of us that are in my generation, kind of the younger staff, have been experiencing burnout at a much higher rate than those that are older and that have been in this for a long time. And I've had some really interesting conversations with Um, a man in my community who is a a leader in his department, been in his social service field for, I think he said almost 50 years, just amazing person doing a great job for his community in a really hard position and has been doing it a very long time. And we were talking about, you know, why is it that the younger generation seems to burn out more. And I was so grateful that he asked that question with such compassion and with such a willingness to help and serve and not a, well, we sucked it up. So you should too. Um, But, you know, we were talking about the internet, about COVID, you know, our generation has so much more information at our, our fingertips and that requires to know something requires something of you. And so to know that, wild injustice against women is going on in Iran to know about wars in the Middle East, to know about, you know, mining practices in Africa and, you know, to hold a cell phone, but also know that it is probably, you know, touched by slave labor. I mean, it's exhausting. (laughs) And I think our generation is struggling with this overstimulation. So we've got our jobs that are stressful We've just been through a global pandemic and major political unrest where the, the things and the systems that we used to be proud of and believe in, we now no longer have that as a safeguard. We were isolated for a long time. We're inundated with this dopamine pumping, amusing five second video entertainment in the palm of our hands every day that when we try to like breathe the fresh air in the morning, it just doesn't do it. And I think we are burnt out on so many levels. And what I'm seeing in the social service space is that the burnout then just is this ripple effect where this is just like this energy suck, right? It's just 
coming from the bottom and there's, there's nothing pouring it back in. There's no, and because the need is always there, there's always going to be another client to call the hotline. There's always going to be another, you know, the police are always going to get called out again. Those, these situations never stop. And so if we don't put that boundary in place and say, we're human too, we need help. Not, there's nothing to keep us from just being, you know, everything we have getting sucked out. And that is kind of the, the role that I'm looking to see change is to help people say, it's okay to stop serving for a little bit to replenish yourself because otherwise we're giving the people that we love and care about the leftovers. But, and I will stop in a second, but one of the things I hear all the time is like, oh, we have, we can't take care of other people until we take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or in order to take care of other people, I have to take care of myself. And what's happening there is we're justifying taking care of ourselves by serving other people. Mm -hmm. And yes, good, helpful, right? And um, it's a little bit murky because again, what we're saying is my value as a human depends on my ability and my commitment to serving other people. And if I stop for a second, the only way I can make that justified is if I validate it by, it'll help me serve better. And so what I tell people is we don't practice self-care so that we can care, take care of other people. We practice self-care because we're humans mm. and we have needs and we have a limited capacity and we just have to, mm. and it is okay. And what's beautiful is that I have a limited capacity and you have a limited capacity and the person I'm serving has a limited capacity. And if my job is to restore autonomy, I'm actually doing them a service by showing them how to honor my boundaries and limits. I'm modeling for them what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with yourself and with other people so that they can say, oh, that's how you do that. That's how you say no. That's how you take time off. Honoring our limits is social service, in my opinion. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness, Krista. So much goodness. I, I'm kind of still stuck on that piece you were talking about, how you talked to that older guy and he was like, why mm -hmm. is your generation, you know, not as resilient? as his generation probably was. And that's a very common um, conversation, or I guess I would almost say argument that gets thrown mm -hmm. out a lot is that our generation is like so lazy and so um, delicate and all these things, right? Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk around that. And I think that you nailed it so beautifully in really showing how our generation, and I think most people in our generation are kind of aware of this, but it's so true that our generation is inundated with more mental exhaustion than probably any generation before us, I think. I mean, I wasn't a part of those other generations, and I know that there was obviously stressors that they experienced that were pretty intense as well. But what I think is different and what you were pretty much saying is the daily constant inundation of information, good and bad. 
And so it's like, you know, us being on our phones, us being on our computers, TVs, whatever it might be, um, things are not only is there just plain information available at our fingertips, but there's also information in the ways that our technology is designed where it wants these unnaturally high dopamine spikes from us. So we're seeing things that make us Mm -hmm. laugh super hard. We're seeing things that make us cry the next second. We're like on this emotional roller coaster on our phones. And then on top of that, we're watching, you know, 10 second clip after 10 second clip most of the time. And so it's like one second you're learning about like you're seeing someone like give birth. And then the next second you're seeing a funny dog video. Then the next second you're seeing something about human (laughs) trafficking. And it's like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) yes, exactly. (laughs) It's so much. And so it makes sense, I think, to both you and I, that our generation is experiencing burnout at a different level and maybe in a different way than generations Mm. before, because it's like, it's a technological kind of exhaustion as well. Um, But I think that it's just too much on our nervous system. Our nervous system all day long in oftentimes the comfort of our own home, you know, away from the actual social services job and people in their job, but at least for most people in the comfort of our home and the safety of our home, we are feeling unsafe and then we are taken on this like dopamine and emotional roller coaster each and every day. Mm-hmm. And so I think you mentioning that piece about boundaries is hugely important. And I think a lot of us kind of know that we need boundaries, not just in our lives with our relationships, but also what does it look like to have um, boundaries with how much social time you have, how much um, work you engage with, how much time you're on your phone, et cetera, et cetera. So something I know you talk about, I've seen you post about, I've heard you talk about, um, is this idea that boundaries are not arbitrary. Is that Mm -hmm. right? That's it. (laughs) So I would love to hear what, yeah, I guess just hear a little bit more about that and just your idea of boundaries and why they're so important for us. Yeah. It was through, you know, working in this field and just hearing a lot of, you know, various messaging about who we're supposed to be as we do this, um, that you just kind of get this idea um, that we are supposed to be the end all be all, you know, we, we, we go to hard places, we're there for them. We are going to be a supportive person and a healing and a helpful person. And it just, and I also come from a, you know, a faith background and in a lot of the different churches and religious spaces I've been in, there's been this sort of, um, kind of this super empowered, super powered, superpowered mindset and kind of conversation where, well, we're believers and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so we can do anything. And so I came into this work with this idea that I can and should be doing everything. And 
kind of had this warped sense of selflessness, which meant that I was constantly denying myself or um, I, it gave me, I, I didn't really, to me, it felt moral and right to be suffering or to overextend or to say yes, because that meant I was being selfless and I'm supposed to be selfless. And so I, I had this just kind of, you know, from growing up in that space, I had this kind of mentality and um, I just started, I don't, I just started asking the question of like, I don't, is this, is this right? Like, are, are we doing this the right way? Um, and for me, I started looking at the, the biblical stories of Jesus who, you know, as a believer, I'm supposed to be modeling my life after and was like, wait a minute. Um, he very much was a person who lived into limits. The man would run away and like hide in a mountainside somewhere. Like the person that we're supposed to be emulating walked by people that needed help. And you know, there, there are stories where he was surrounded by people, but only spoke to or healed or touched one person. And you know that there had to be other people out there. And so you see that I just begin to notice, oh, there's, there's a different way of doing things. And I wonder if I have despised my limits, but maybe, maybe God doesn't despise my limits. Maybe I'm, I have them for a reason. And I started wondering like if I if I were to be limited, if I were to say actually I can't do that, what does that mean for me, for the other people in my life? And I started seeing, oh actually that's really beneficial. If I am not this like you said, the center of the story, if it's not me at every turn, um, then, oh, actually, it's not about me. And the more selfless I'm trying to be, and I put selfless in quotes, the more selfless I'm trying to be, um, the more self-centered I seem to be, right? Like, it's just, I'm always there. I'm always showing up. I'm always doing the things. It's all about how good I, how good of a person I am, how reliable I am, how passionate I am, whatever it is. But there's just a lot of I and me in that way of thinking. And I just started to realize like, oh, I, boundaries are not something that we make up. And, you know, the boundaries conversation in the way that we're having it is relatively new. Obviously, boundaries are not new and there have been wise people talking about it for a long time. But the, the, it's a hot button phrase. And it just always kind of, I never got it. I literally never understood it. It just sounded to me like, oh, we just... I put a boundary there, right? Like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. So I'm going to put a boundary. Like, I just kind of thought we felt it out. And we're like, ah, oh, I'll do this, but not that ah, boundary. And we just kind of stuck them somewhere. But when I started to realize, oh, I am only, I am literally only capable of so much. In other words, this is where I stop. That's a boundary. <laughs> like, so in that regard, it's not arbitrary. It exists. I didn't make it up. It's there. I am a human. And I am myself. I am not you. And I can only control me. And so another way I kind of describe boundaries, boundaries are where I end and you begin. They are the differentiator between you and me. And all I can do 
is live into this space, the me space. And if you think about yourself as a, I started imagining as like a plot of land. And what I noticed was that I was trying so hard to get other people's plots of land to grow that I had completely neglected my own. And that is what I call overextending. And there's a difference between being wholehearted, which is this is what I this is who I am, this is what I have to give, and I'm gonna give it all. I think wholehearted means being passionate and being, you know, reliable and showing up as much as it does being honest about where you're hurt, where you're tired, where you're frustrated. To be wholehearted means to be authentic, to fully show up as your full self, which means all of your power and your gifting and your passion and all of your limits. Those don't get to be shucked off to the side. They have to come along because they are a part of who you are. That is showing up wholeheartedly. Overextending is where you begin to ignore your limits and begin to press beyond what is authentically you and say, oh, I, I can turn that part down. I can shut that off. And so practically what that looks like might be, you know, missing family dinners because you got called into work. It might mean um, saying yes to a client when you're not really comfortable with what they asked. It might be, you know, working on the weekends and not feeling like you have a, a, a say or you can't say no. To constantly be overextending, right? It just kind of pushes your own needs, your own limits aside for the sake of trying to be selfless or trying to do something. And for me, when I started asking, why am I doing this? It was because I wanted to either, I wanted to have some, I wanted to have some outcome, whether that was, I want this person to be okay, or I want to have a good reputation or I want to be good. And this is what a good person does. Um, I switched my definition of what it meant to be good. And I realized if my definition of being good does not include being brutally honest and truthful, then it's not actually goodness. It's a lie. And I can't stand for a lie, but I was living a lie because I was constantly ignoring where I was tired, where I was hurt, where I was sad, where I didn't want to say yes. I didn't want to do that event. I didn't want to take that call, but I felt like I had to. And in feeling like I had to, and most of the time, no one made me feel that way. And if I had vocalized, Hey, I'm really tired. I can't do this. I probably would have been let go. But it was me. It was me that thought that to be a good person or to be selfless, I have to do these things that I felt victim. I felt like was a victim of my circumstance. Um, And that in itself will breed trauma. When you feel like you don't have control over, that's the definition of trauma. Something bad happened to you and it made a negative impact. When we feel like something happened to us, that my job happened to me, that is where trauma comes from. And so we can actually do the exact same work and experience it very differently. 
when we choose to show up, when we get that phone call and say, okay, I want to do this. I'm in. That is not traumatic. And you can have the same phone call, same experience, but because you chose it, it does not register physiologically as a trauma. But if you feel like it happened to you, I have to take this phone call. I have to do this event. I have to stay late and write notes. Whatever it is, when you something happened to you, that is traumatic. And a lot of stuff happens to us in this job because a lot of stuff happened to the people we're serving. That's the space we're in. But when we approach our work with this, I'm being pulled rather than I'm choosing this, I'm showing up. And you might choose to show up or you might choose to say no. That's a boundary, right? That's you living into the wholehearted truth of who you are and saying, okay, I'm going to show up here. Or actually, I value time with my family. And so I'm not going to do this event because saying yes to one thing means saying no to another. Great. You've made a choice. Or I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to skip out family dinner because I feel called to this work and this person is important to me. Great. You made a choice. But that's still being wholehearted. That's still acknowledging the truth of who you are. And part of that is acknowledging your limits, that at some point you have to rest, you have to have joy, you have to connect, you have to heal, you need to take time away. And that doesn't make you less than, it makes you human. Yeah. Amen. Amen to all of that. I love your, the way that you gave us the visual of like wholehearted versus overextended because I think a lot of people myself included in in my younger years thought that in order to show love I needed to like physically show that I was overextending myself because if I was giving more than I have then that person will see oh wow she must really care that's like how it registered in my mind. Yes, yes. And I this I might be answering my own question here, but I was actually going to ask you, like, why do you think most people and maybe even people in um, social services and whatnot, why do you think that we think the most loving thing we can do is to like burn ourselves out and overextend ourselves? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I actually, actually, if that's okay, I want to reflect that question back to you with that example you just gave Mm. of what was it about showing up in that way that you felt was loving? Is that maybe how it was modeled for you or what was kind of your thought process there? That's a really great question. So (laughs) honestly, I think like, you know, I mentioned my dad was a police officer And I think that he did a fantastic job at his work. He was so great at his job. And I looked up to him so much for being this, you know, sort of hero as a child saw it. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the like programming I think we get from like TV and movies and all that too is like 
police officers, firefighters are these like superheroes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so in yeah. my mind, I was like, and and I was watching him work graveyard. I was watching him like barely be home. He was just constantly working. Mm. And I think a piece of that showed me like, oh, in order to be like good, to do good, you need to be like superhuman. You need to be on all the time and just like constantly grinding to like save people. Yeah. And at the same time, he wasn't home a lot. So Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of like uh, available for for me and my siblings, you know, it just innately just probably wasn't taking immaculate care of himself in that way, like, you know, psychologically and everything. And so when he was home, he he was sleeping and he gave us what he could, but there wasn't a, a lot of overflow. Right. Right. And then on top of that, um, my mother also has, you know, worked jobs full time. She's dealt with, um, you know, different mental struggles and things like that that have made it hard for her to show up for her children when we were younger. Mm-hmm. And so I think just that combination together, you know, them doing what they could, but not having the resources like you've mentioned to really show up for us and like show up for us resourced, show up for us after mm-hmm. they have taken care of themselves. And so anything that we did get in the form of like affection, um, attention, like those kinds of things were from my perspective as a kid was like, oh, I'm so tired, but okay, what do you need? You know, mm-hmm. it was like, I don't have anything left, but I'll give you the last fumes I've got. Yeah. And and again, that's that's my perception of how it felt as a kid. And so I think sure. I I kind of stepped into the role of being a mother to my siblings as well because mm-hmm. I could see how how there was a need, right? There was there was there was a need for maybe more presence um in mm-hmm. in our household. And so I think it really like catapulted me and it was not even like asked of me or anything, but it was more just like being the oldest sibling. I think this is something a lot of oldest siblings experience. Are you an oldest sibling by any chance? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> we are just uh-huh. like, I don't know what it is, but we just like show up as like people pleasers. <laughs> yes. And we want to like make everything good and right. And mm-hmm. and then we're also children trying to do that on top of it. So our our perception yes. is like so black and white and not very nuanced. And so, you know, that on top of it, I just sprung to the occasion essentially of like, let me take care of these two other kids, mm-hmm. you know, who had parents. I didn't really totally need to do that. And then on top of that, I'm trying to juggle like, oh, I'm kind of like a parent figure for these kids. And then I'm also trying to take care of myself. And then I'm like also trying to be an overachiever. And I also like want to make my parents proud, but they're so busy. So like, let me do these things that'll really get their attention, you know? And so it was like all these little threads then created me, which then thought, I don't know, I guess, I guess from there, I just thought overextending myself, giving more than I know that I have or pushing myself to give a lot meant 
yeah, I don't know. I guess it just it just meant like I was really showing up. I was really like giving you my full attention if if I could do so after I've like done all these like heroic and overachieving things. I don't know. So yeah. So yeah, I guess I guess that's that's kind of it. Have have you had an experience like that at all? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I so resonate with the you know, watching your parents struggle and seeing the gap that that creates and wanting to fill that gap. And then your identity, but also as a child, your safety kind of revolves around you filling that gap. And so that was me. I, um, you know, and very much like you said, you saw something missing in your home um, and you saw the need that was created. And so you rushed to fill that so that your home would be a safe place. And I, I did the same thing. And then we learn that overextending or rushing in to be the savior, mm-hmm. our brain has programmed that into our mind that not only is that good and right and moral, it is safe. <laughs> Things will fall apart if I don't keep them together. It's like the fixer mentality. Yes. For me, that absolutely was what it was. And so I would, you know, rush into, if I saw, I, I, and I still use this phrase, I love me a burning building. Like there's nothing I am drawn to more than a person who just needs help. I love it. But I, I have had to learn and I had to do, e, I literally had to do EMDR therapy to wow. figure this out yeah. that I, I do that. I, and so at work I had conversations with my boss and where I would tell her I'm so burnt out. I can't do this anymore. I'm exhausted. And she was so amazing. <laughs> and she looked at me and goes, I, I hear you, Krista. I really do. And I'm so glad you shared that. I'm just a little confused because six months ago, you were very excited about this. <laughs> and I was like, I know, I don't know what's happening. I, I So I went to my therapist, we did EMDR. And I realized, oh, there was a need. And when she told me that there was a need, a, a project, a whole something, I got so excited because I could, I could do that. There's something about to fall apart. Put me in. I'm in it. But what happens when you establish yourself as a pillar is that you cannot move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot of weight on top of you. And when you see other people moving freely around and you're there carrying the weight of the thing that you propped up, now you're bitter and angry and resentful. At least totally. that was that was me. Totally. And so I would I I would come back to her and this was cyclical. This happened multiple times. And I was like, "Okay, there's a pattern here. What am I doing?" And so when I when I talk to people about, you know, how to navigate this, I tell them look for patterns. Look for those things where you're just like, "Man, this is not a good situation and I'm here again." What's going on here? Because there's something programmed in your nervous system. And for me, it was when you see a gaping hole, rush in to fill it. Not only are you going to be a good person and everyone's going to praise you, but the thing that you need to stay together will stay together because your safety depends on it. As a kid, 
I didn't want my family to fall apart. So I held them together. That was a safety thing. And that just kind of stuck in my nervous system. And so as you were sharing about, you know, you saw your parents do these amazing things. And, and as a child, they gave you what you perceived was like maybe their fumes, but you still felt loved because they only had fumes and they gave you fumes. Like you interpreted that as love, which I just think is a beautiful, like, glimpse into like childhood Chelsea's mind of just like, wow, I see you. Like, I see you trying your best. Mm-hmm. But kind of circling back to that, that idea we talked about earlier, where we're saying, you know, as service providers, our job is to live into our own boundaries and model that. This is exactly why, because if I'm showing up for my client and I am exhausted and stressed and I have skipped my own family time to take their call or I have, you know, neglected my own health to do this work. When they look at us and they see that, that's how they, you're supposed to be the healthy person. You're supposed to be the helper. You have positioned yourself in that way. And they're looking at you going, well, they're not where I'm at. So they've made it. And now we're modeling this lifestyle for them. And that perpetuates where we don't want that for our clients. And I started realizing like the way that we live is how we tell our clients not to live. We teach our clients to say no. We teach our clients to take care of themselves. We have better aspirations for them than what we're living for ourselves. And they see the incongruency in that. They see that we're not doing what we're telling them to do. Mm-hmm. So why don't I why don't I need to do that? Right. If, if you have to take, you take care of yourself, I'm not going to take care of myself because I'm, I'm a social worker, but you take care of yourself. Well, then what they interpret is, well, what makes you different than me? Mm. Well, you must be better than me. You must have something that I don't have. Cause if I need to sleep and eat and I, I have to say no to unhealthy work situations. And if I have to put boundaries in, but you don't have to, you must be, superhuman. Mm. But if you go to the root of that, we're super meaning above. If we position ourselves as more than or as above human, anybody who's just a plain old average human is now going to feel beneath you. They're going to feel less than. And I was in a, as at a conference and I heard a panel of four survivors and they were sharing their experience with service providing professionals. And all of them, in one way or another, said, we just want to be treated like a person. And I thought, man, that's so interesting because I guarantee you that none of the providers that worked with them wanted them to feel less than human, wanted them to feel like they were a project. So how did they end up feeling that way? And I think maybe part of it is this superhuman mentality idea that if we pretend like we don't have needs, but we tell you that you do, there's not a whole lot of room for interpretation. You're going to feel like you are missing something. And that is the opposite of healing. That's the opposite of restoring autonomy and in building empowerment. And so I think what's important for people to remember, whether you are a service provider or like you said, a caregiver, if you are caring for children or elderly parents, if you're a teacher, a nurse, 
you are a human being with a story and we all come into our roles, into our field, into the jobs we kind of take on now with that childhood past. And so just like you were taught a certain way of what love might look like, and just like I was taught that I had to save things, everybody comes in with that story. And that's why digging into our beliefs and asking, why am I doing this? Why do I feel this way? And kind of getting to the root of how we got here is so important because as parents, right, raising children, as an advocate or a a CPS caseworker working with a young person, we want to make them more healthy. We don't want to perpetuate (laughs) the things that we grew up in. And so it takes some reflection. It takes some asking questions. And then when you see that part of yourself, it takes compassion, It takes understanding, oh man, that was really hard. And yeah, I I saw my parents be incredible people, but part of me wished that they had been more. Or, you know, for for me, I, I had amazing parents, but things were hard and they did their best and it was still hard, right? To be able to just say, that hurt. And maybe I didn't get everything that I needed and that's okay. And now we're here Mm -hmm. and things are challenging or yeah, I, you know, I had this interact with a client and I have nightmares or I'm bitter. I'm bitter all the time to be able to just acknowledge those things and have compassion so that we can kind of come back to who we are. Because at the end of the day, all of us, whether you are a provider, a helper, a caregiver, or you are on the receiving end of those services or help, we're humans. We're people with a story. We've got a past. Things are challenging, and we're just trying to do our best and figure it out, and everyone's doing that. And if we can have compassion for ourselves, and we can show up and say, you know what, I get it, because that was me yesterday, and I don't have the answers for you, but I'm going to be here. Mm-hmm. Presence is healing. And I love, I listened to your podcast with Danelle, which was just beautiful. And Danelle said something beautiful. She said that our story is our true medicine. Mm-hmm. And I love that because that, it's our story that births our compassion. It's our story that births our empathy, that makes us remember that we're that we're people. It's that part of us that goes, oh yeah, I'm a human. Like it's rough and tumble in here and we're just trying to figure it out. Like, and when you can own your story and you can own who you are, where you are, how you are and say, this is it, this is me. I can engage with you in such a different way. And I can realize that I'm just going to I'm just going to be here. We're just two humans along this path. But presence is healing. And we think that fixing is healing. We think getting them into that program or getting them off the street is healing. And it's not. Sitting with them in their story and looking them in the eye and saying, you, you live in a tent or you are on drugs or you won't leave this abusive partner. I'm with you right here, right now, unhealed, messy. I'm with you. I'm for you. 
that is life-changing. That is life-changing presence. But it's really challenging to truly, truly do that for someone unless we've had someone do that for us. And that means we have to acknowledge our limits, acknowledge our struggles, put ourselves in the position to receive help so that we can experience presence, so that we can give presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what I really want to see in this space is that willingness. And so for parents listening, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid to take care of yourself. Don't be afraid to chase your dreams, to go away for a while, to take a vacation with your partner. Like, take care of yourself because your kids are watching and they're, they're wanting to know how can I, how, how can I live in this world? How do I take up space in this world? How do I navigate? And I think we want to give the people we love our very best and give them the best life. But I think part of that is, is less, again, the action of, loving and caring and driving you to soccer and, you know, giving you all of the things that you always wanted. It's teaching you how to be your own person. Mm. And the only way to really teach someone how to be their own person is for you to be your own person. That's the best Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. It reminds me of that, like, kind of cliche quote, but that you hear where it's like, you can only love someone else's love as deeply as you love yourself it it's mm-hmm. kind of like that theme across everything about across being a parent being a person just trying to be mm-hmm. like loving in this world being a service worker like how can you do any of those things truly on like a deeply embodied like true level if you have not done it for yourself first I think that's really where it begins like you're saying like that whole idea of wanting to fix that I talked about and you talked about Mm -hmm. is like it actually made me think of like the safety piece you brought up safety and it's like obviously as a kid I didn't know how to regulate my nervous system I was not being shown that and that's a huge thing if people are not aware kids learn how to regulate their nervous system and then take that information throughout the rest of their life from their parents. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes hard for me to say that because I know I don't ever want it to sound like I, I don't want people to internalize like, oh, if you're not doing this correctly, you're doing it wrong and like shame on you. Right. Like that's the hard part. It's, it's tricky, but the reality is that as children, we are imprinted on subconsciously. So like when we're a kid, we are taking in through our eyes and ears what our parents are doing and our brain is wiring exactly that. It says, mm-hmm. oh, okay, that's how you do that. Toot, 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 you know, mm-hmm. and now it's hardwired in. Thankfully, as adults, we can change that, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. And so that's mm-hmm. why, you know, so much of the work you're doing with helping people change their beliefs with nervous system work at large it's it's hard work it is hard work and and I'm sure you might might have experienced this I know I've experienced this I think sometimes people will come to a therapist or to 
a coach or whatever it might be. And, and they're kind of just like, okay, fix me. <laughs> like, can you just mm. do what needs to be done so I can be fixed? And, and it, again, bringing back that idea of autonomy, it really actually looks like that person sitting in front of you, reflecting your autonomy back to you and you deciding to make that change. Would you say that that's sort of how it looks? Yes. Yes. And, you know, owning my agency and figuring out what even that is and what that means has been very recent and, but an absolute game changer. When I started noticing like, oh, I, I heard someone say that. And then I adopted that belief as my own, but I didn't, I didn't really make that choice or, you know, as I was, you know, kind of refiguring out like, okay, I'm burnt out. I'm resentful. I'm exhausted. I'm lonely. I'm bitter. None of those are great. (laughs) How did I get here? And seeing all the times where I had been good and and nice and selfless and had shown up for somebody and had said yes and did all these things. Um, And I was like, well, if I stop doing those things, then I'm I'm a selfish person. I'm not a nice person. And then I had to really get honest and be like, why, why did you say yes? Well, because I wanted to be known as reliable or I wanted them to like me or I didn't want them to hurt or I started anything that was either rooted in fear. I'm afraid that they're going to judge me or I'm afraid I'm not going to be seen as a good person or whatever that had to go. And anything that was rooted in trying to control someone else. Yeah. So even like you, you were mentioning earlier in your example that was so beautiful that, to share was like, I'm trying to, I'm overextending myself so that you will see. Yes. And I thought that was a really interesting phrase. So that you will see that I, I'm trying to control your perception. A hundred percent. And we love that, right? So much of our energy is spent trying to control other people's perceptions, other people's decisions. And so part of kind of reclaiming that for ourselves is looking at, okay, if, if I'm making a decision based off of how I want you to respond to me, I'm going to do this so that you will do this. Well, I can't guarantee that you will do the thing I want you to do. So if I can't guarantee that, how am I going to, what am I going to do? What am I going to choose to do? And really honing in on that key piece of letting go of what I cannot control. First, identifying what I can't control because we're not taught that and that just gets messy. And when people model those kind of controlling behaviors for us, we just think that we can control things. So first figuring out, oh, I can't control how you think, what you do, what you say, how things pan out. I can literally only control what I do, how I choose to show up, what I do with my emotions, what I choose to dwell on. That's all I have. That's literally all in the world I have control over. And that's actually a lot of power. Mm. But we have to shift our mindset from thinking power is controlling outcomes to power is controlling ourselves, making choices for ourselves. And when you really do that, that is so powerful. But I started noticing like, okay, 
if I am showing up on, you know, to this event or to this, um, if I'm volunteering or whatever, so that you will think I'm a good person, I'm going to have to stop showing up. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard. But then what I noticed is that when I did say yes, it meant something. And that's, you mentioned this too, of it coming from a true embodied place. I had to really learn like, if I'm just giving because that's who I am, I'm a giver. Um, if I'm just like doing all the things because I feel like I have to, am I giving or am I being robbed? <laughs> like, cause I feel like I'm being robbed right now. Obviously I'm making these choices, but the energy is so different. The heart behind it is so different. And when I started saying no to things, saying no to people, no to conversations, no to situations. When I started to say yes, I meant it. Mm. I'm, I want to be there. I want to help. I want to serve. I want to sit with you in this moment. I want to take that phone call or take that job. It was just, it came from such a different heart place. And what I noticed was that when I started to, to use those, to live in that boundary and to be really clear with my intentions, the people that I was trying to love or trying to support, first of all, they were okay when I didn't show up. Nothing fell apart. Nothing stopped working because I wasn't there. And that was a bit of an ego punch. Yeah. But I actually, in the people I was walking with and, and serving and trying to be a healing presence for, they were healing better and faster mm-hmm. when I was saying no, when I wasn't the end all be all when I said, Hey, I can give you, Hey, you know, if they call me in the middle of the night, I've got 15 minutes, you know, like when I started putting some boundaries on things and, and being, choosing my agency and saying, okay, what do I feel like I can give right now? I can give 20 minutes, an hour. I can show up, whatever it was. I started just being intentional instead of just being like, yes, yes, sure. Whatever. Anybody take it all. When I started getting really intentional, and would s- communicate what I needed, they actually healed better and faster. And I've seen my the people that I'm walking with, the people that I served grow leaps and bounds in regulating their own nervous system, in being able to have perception for themselves. And they would say things that, you know, just out of their trauma, out of their pain, and then would be able to see the truth and I wouldn't have to give it to them, you know, like I was, I watched them heal and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I love this and I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. And I felt like I was giving quality for the first time. And I was like, I'm never going back to giving quantity ever again, because this feels so good. Quality over quantity. Oh my gosh. The way to that we show up when we genuinely want to show up for something, I mean, the way that we're felt from the people around us is so much more magnetic and like genuine and pure. People can feel that. Yeah. People can feel when you're showing up to something that you don't really want to show up to or that you feel you're overextending to show up for. Like mm-hmm. that energy is then infused into whatever you're doing. It's it's really felt and and maybe even absorbed by other people around you. And so I think it it's just like you said, it's so incredibly important to get so honest with yourself 
about about the actions that we're taking, whether you are in the social services or just in your life. I think it is so critical. It is so critical because we could talk all day about, you know, like the different breathwork practices, um, the minerals that you need, um, making sure your blood sugars balanced, all of those things. Those are all important. They're all foundational, right? But it's like that meme of that guy just like slapping the sticker on the side of a water tank or like it's like just exploding everywhere. Like yes. that's what it reminds me of. It's like you're if you're not approaching it and and getting honest with yourself and looking at it from the beliefs, the deep rooted mm-hmm. beliefs, the reasons why you're doing things, um, really looking at like why are you exhausted? Where is this burnout coming from? Why are you not enjoying the work that you're doing maybe or whatever it might be? Like it might not be that you need a supplement. It might not be that you need an adrenal cocktail or like all these mm-hmm. things. Those could be helpful, but maybe just for a few minutes because it, because beyond that, deeper than that, your entire life is feeling drained by your your lack of boundaries your lack of awareness around what it is that you your limits like you said your limits right right yeah it can be it can be as simple as that so thank you for sharing all of that that is so relatable for myself and I'm sure for so many others like beyond relatable I mean it's even even though I feel like I've come a long way, it's something even like literally earlier today I was talking about with a friend mm-hmm. <laughs> and feeling like tired and not knowing why and blah, blah, blah. Um, yes. Yeah. It continues to show up. I think that's something important to remember too is mm-hmm. like in any healing work, I don't think we ever just fully heal ourselves. Like it's going to continue to show up no matter how good you get at it. Um, you're going to have to keep making those honest, embodied, and sometimes challenging decisions to safeguard yourself and your life and to really be able to show up and like love the people in your life and the work that you do. Yeah. Um, So a word that comes up a lot in these kinds of conversations in nervous system, I think you've already mentioned it today, is resiliency. Hmm. And I think that this word gets clumped together with burnout often. And I even see sometimes, like, especially online, um, I used to talk about resiliency a lot. It's something that means a lot to me. It's something that I want or I've felt inspired to share with others because I feel like it's such an important piece of our life and our existence. But I've noticed that people sometimes get... um, they don't fully, I think, understand what resilience can mean, what it means. Mm. Um, and in their mind, in some people's minds, they think that I'm asking them to overextend to just or just like suck it up and be strong. Yeah. When like I that's that's not what it means. It's so much deeper and more nourishing than that. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about your your thoughts on what resiliency means. Yeah, I've heard, you know, just in the last, well, really the last several years as I've watched what you share, which is just always quality, Chelsea. It's always thank quality. It's just, <laughs> I've been quiet lately, are. but thank you. 
No, I, well, and I think that's something I just really appreciate about you is that you are committed to quality. Mm -hmm. And even just with starting this podcast, like with Kismet, I was listening to you share all the ingredients in Kismet. And I was like, wow, she is committed to the good stuff. And watching you share about resilience and how, you know, we're meant to experience hard things, you know, with your ranch journey, like we are, we're not meant to just like sit pretty on our fannies. Like we, we have grit to us as humans. And part of us longs to access that bit. We want to get in there and get in the good stuff. And I think that is such a beautiful aspect of humanity. We were meant for hard work. And so as I do this work and talk about, you know, mitigating stress and all this stuff, I'm not saying we need to make this more comfortable. Absolutely not. But when we begin to associate our identity and our worth with the grit and we get more comfortable in the grit than we do in the grace, that's when we're not resilient. Because to me, resilience means to bounce back. So if you look up the definition of resiliency, a good old little Google search will give you two definitions. One is the the ability to withstand toughness. Two, the ability to bounce back or to regain shape. And I am really drawn to that second definition because especially in social services, it's really easy to either two things. You get hit with these stories, these situations you witness, you hear the most horrendous things, things that you have no grid for, things that you didn't know were possible. And you're looking at someone in the eye and this is just what happened to them. And oftentimes they're very flippant and nonchalant about it. And they say this thing and your world comes crashing down. You're just like, I don't even know how to process what you just told me. And so we can get hit with that experience and it can just crumble us. But like your parents, right? People that it's your job to keep showing up. You have to find a way around that you have to keep going. And I think the interesting thing about social services is that we hold a lot of stories, right? Obviously, people that live it experience horrendous things. And, you know, they often experience it within a family or a community unit. But it's just a very unique position to be a a provider who's serving a lot of people at one time. And so you have a lot of stories, a lot of horror, And in that space, I think it can be really, really challenging to um, keep showing up. You have to find a way to keep showing up. For me, and this was this was subconscious, but you just start you just start numbing out and you start getting really heavy. And I think for me, I noticed that joy was really hard. And so I would come home from working with a client, multiple clients a day. And, you know, it was just so sad, so hard. 
And not only the stories they're telling me, but then we're trying to get them help. And the very systems that are supposed to support them are not serving them. They're making it harder. And so you're just like angry and frustrated and sad and tired because the world is a hard place. Okay. It's a hard place. And then you go into a room of people and they're all laughing. And I, I just remember walking in and feeling so alone because I was so angry and I wanted to just yell at everyone and tell them to stop laughing because they do they know how much suffering is in the world. You have your head buried in the sand and your happy, perfect little lives while there's people going through hell out there. But I also didn't want to yell because I didn't want anyone else to have to feel what I was feeling. And so I kept it in and I faked a smile and, you know, had service level conversations and would go home. And that just compounds over time where you begin to just retreat more and more into yourself because what do you do with all of this? What do you, how do you make sense of the world and how do you relate to other people when they have no idea? And then you tell them what you do for a living and they say things like, wow, I could never do that. You're so strong. And you're like, I want to die. <laughs> like, I don't feel strong. I don't, I don't want to be a superhero. Like, please stop putting me on a pedestal. I want to come down. Like, I want to be a normal person. This does not feel good. And it was just, it was so isolating and so lonely and so hard. And the things that I used to take joy in, I, you know, I grew up doing theater. I love stories. I used to want to make people laugh. Like that was, was like my ultimate dream in life was I wanted to bring joy to people. And as I worked in this field, joy was just something I grew almost to disdain because it just felt less than like, how can we have joy when these other things are happening? And so I kind of, to me, if you just kind of visualize this experience, it's like you got hit with the trauma, it left a dent, and then you stayed there in that dented space. But resilience is to get hit with the trauma because it comes left, right, and center, to feel it, to be moved by it, to not be stoic or steal yourself up, to not be numb or hard-hearted. It should move you. And then to bounce back and to bounce back to joy, connection, your ability to love, your ability to laugh and rest and be playful, your ability to be creative, to be sad for yourself about something small and silly, like to come back to that side of yourself when you've experienced hard things. And yes, we're going to be changed. It's not realistic to say that this work isn't going to change us. But we have a responsibility to ourselves to cultivate that other side of us, to cultivate the good. And the other phrase I like to use is orient to the light. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, when we're fighting injustice or if you're a parent or a caregiver and life is just really hard, we can so easily like turn to face the, you know, what, what do you do for a living, Krista? Oh, I fight human trafficking. Like we use that word, right? I fight human trafficking or I, I stand against this or I'm, you know, my parents are sick or my kid are sick. We kind of orient to 
the thing that we're trying to help, the thing we're trying to change. And if you can just shift a little bit to say, yes, there's that side. And I'm also trying to build a world that's full of joy because we want joy, right? We're fighting human trafficking or fighting whatever it is so that people can live free, happy, beautiful lives. So if all of my time and energy is spent focusing on the negative and the bad and the hard, when, when we win the fight per se, what's left? Have we cultivated the good stuff? Have we cultivated creativity and safety and community and freedom? Or were we so focused on the hard and dark and negative and scary? And so I started to really shift my perspective and see, no, actually laughing with my friends is, is a justice movement. It is a, it's healing. It's not less than, it's not cheap. It's not negligent of other people's suffering to, to relax with my friends, to eat a good meal, to love my family, to draw and paint and rest and go swimming. Even if other people aren't getting to do that right now, this is me creating a world where that is still possible. And instead of just trying to like be hard and be heavy and be sad because other people are suffering, I want to live in joy and create joy and invite people into that space and teach people how to live in that space. And so resilience is the ability to come back to that, to yes, work hard, do the hard things, see the hard things, say yes in those moments, show up when you're tired and when you don't want to. Like, it's not all about just doing what makes you comfortable. Like, you're going to have to choose to do the hard thing. But why? Because it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Because we're building something beautiful. And if you don't have moments where you feel that, I think we, I think we lose part of the reason for suffering. Um, and this is very much a, a personality thing for me. So not everyone's going to resonate with this, but I, I do tend to feel like the, when there's suffering to be done, everything else should be on pause, you know? And, um, that those dark, heavy, hard places are like where the real stuff is at, you know? Um, but (laughs) this is for your nerds that are listening. Um, I, I felt like I heard God tell me one day that it's for the love of the Shire that we go to Mordor. So a little Lord of the Rings reference for people that <laughs> get it. I love that because I've been wanting to watch Lord of the Rings. So now I'm getting more signs. I got to watch it. Yes, yes, yes. It's it's messages left and right. But mm. I think it could be so easy to be like, there's this fiery, dark, evil place. And we have to go and do the hard thing. And and you see the little hobbits and their faces are all sooty and their feet are torn up and they're tired. And they don't remember what strawberries taste like. Like it's very sad. And you're like, wow, that's heroism right there. Yeah. But they didn't just go to Mordor because it was fun or because they wanted to. It was for the love of the Shire, for the simple, the comfortable, the silly, the flippant, the airy, the light. And we can so easily begin to disdain those things or look down on those things because they're not hard and gritty. 
but man, that's where life is. Like that's where beauty and joy and connection and rest and creativity are. And we're not going to those dark and hard places for the sake of the dark and hard. We're going there to do what we got to do and then get home as quickly as possible. And so the quicker that you can get to your home, the quicker you can return to your joy. And I'm not saying skip the grieving process. Do not skip the process. But remember that home is the destination. Remember that love, joy, connection, meaning, beauty, that's the reason we do these things. Mm -hmm. That's the reason that you wake up at 4 a.m. to feed your baby and you go through all the postpartum hard journey. Or that's the reason that you you know, stay up with your sick mom or dad. Like that's the reason we do hard things. That's the reason you show up for your animals in the ranch is because there's beauty on the other side of that moment. Mm -hmm. And when we can remember that and keep our eyes on that and stay connected to that, it's, it's what it's all for, you know? Um, but we have to do the work. And sometimes it means I don't want to go to dinner with the girls tonight. Like I don't have it in me, but I'm going to go and maybe I'm going to let them know where I'm at and they can support me and hold me. And I'm not going to put up a front, but I'm going to choose connection. I'm going to choose joy. That to me is, is part of being resilient is that ability to bounce back to that place. Yeah. Whew. That was a sermon in itself right there. <laughs> that was so good. Oh my gosh. I I love that last thing you just said about like going to dinner with your girlfriends because it's the thing you do that gives you joy, right? Even if cuz we're talking about having boundaries and not overextending yourself and not burning out, blah blah blah. But also having the awareness of what things actually pour into you. And maybe mm -hmm. that's one of those things that pours into you. And so even though you're like, oh, I'd rather just like sit on my phone for four hours than like go to go to dinner with my girlfriends. That's where you can kind of get into, you know, your mind and get honest with yourself and be like, you know what, I think I will feel better and more filled up by this dinner with my girlfriends than sitting on my phone for four hours or whatever else I might be doing. Yes. It's, it's really about asking yourself like which of these options, because as adults, thank goodness we have options, mm -hmm. which of them is going to be the most nourishing for not just like my physical body, but like my emotional body, everything. Right. And then on yes. top of it, you know, boundaries, the topic of boundaries we've been talking about, you had mentioned when you were, answering that question about boundaries, how, you know, boundaries aren't just this thing that we like say in our head and they're not this wall that we put up. They require communication and connection. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, showing up to that dinner with your girlfriends means showing up and being like, hey, I got to be honest, I am low energy today. I gave it my all, you know, whatever. And maybe the boundary is just like, I, I'm not going to be out late tonight, but I'm right. communicating that with you. I'm talking with you about it. So like, we're all on the same page. Yes. That's yes. such a big piece in, in boundaries and like relationships, I think. Yes. Um, 
And then everything else. Okay, this whole idea of resiliency being bouncing back. Very similar to how I guess I have defined it as well, which is just like the ability to go with the flow of life, to like mm-hmm. undulate with all the things. Yeah. And and not get broken, <laughs> not get burnt out, um, be able to take care of ourselves through the highs and the lows and, and go with life and not, you know, end up um, unable to show up at all. Right. And yeah. I love that you brought the peace in, the the joy piece, the happiness, the laughter, the love. Like, that's the part that I think gets left out of that conversation. And yeah, I guess in especially the the resiliency conversation is that like, we're not just talking about like resiliency to the hard stuff. We're talking about like the full spectrum of like mm-hmm. the human experience and remembering that the reason we need to take care of ourselves so that we can go with this flow is because the whole point of like having those hard moments of having those lows of going through hard things is to restore joy is to restore peace love all of yeah. these things like when you were talking about that i was like oh my gosh like even that whole thing we talked about of about like wanting to overextend ourselves and fix things um, as a form of love. At the Mm. root of those things, we're just wanting to restore peace, joy, happiness. It goes back to that whole idea of like as kids, just wanting to feel safe. And then Mm -hmm. I think as adults, why so many of us fix and overextend and, and also want to be a hero and want you know, this person to do exactly this is really because that's what feels safe to us. Yes. We, we maybe because of childhood, probably because of childhood are coming into all these situations in adulthood feeling like, you know, maybe we weren't given the tools to know how to establish that feeling of safety from within. Mm -hmm. So because we don't have this sense of safety that we can anchor into, at any time because we weren't taught. Um, we, we don't know, right? Most people, I think, weren't taught. Then we go out into the world and we see problems and we're like, ooh, that doesn't feel safe and I don't have mm-hmm. a feeling of safety within me, so let me go fix that so I feel safe yes. and save that person at the same time. So we both get, okay, whew, we got that under control. Yes, it's that's like it. This, it's this deep, like, it's this deep, our con- a lot of our controlling, fixing habits of wanting people to change the way we want them to change comes from this feeling of unsafety. And at the deeper root of that, it's just wanting things to be peaceful, joyful, happy, etc. It really yes. is that, I mean, I want to say it's really that simple, but it is also so freaking layered and nuanced in all the things. Right. Well, and, you know, the, the difference between, you know, we say this all the time, right? Like what works for surviving does not work for thriving. Yeah. And so when we learn as kids um, how to survive, and I, you know, I use that word kind of lightly, um, 
you know, it sounds like maybe you or I didn't have to survive in a physical sense, but we're trying to keep that joy, love, peace connection surviving. We're trying to keep that surviving. And so we kind of act out of that place. The things that served us to just keep things alive don't serve us to make them thrive. Mm -hmm. And when we are living out of survival mode, yes, we want love and joy and peace and connection, but what we're doing to get those things is not necessarily helpful. Mm-hmm. And so the process that we've been talking about is how do we get what we really want? Mm-hmm. And that's why honesty is so important because if we are not honest with ourselves about how we're feeling and how we're showing up and the situation that we're in, um, we're going to miss out on what we're truly after. And I think for me, I was so terrified. I was so terrified to be honest with myself because I had just been taught to stuff and shove and be good and, you know, pray about it or just all, all the things, right? Like we're just kind of taught, like, don't go there because at some point you're going to go too far. And I just got... I just have become radically, I've become committed to radical honesty mm-hmm. where I will not, um, for the sake of anything else, forsake the truth. Yeah. And I will take the truth at all costs. And I think that's what it has, that's what all healing journeys have to take. Um, for our clients, right? We don't want them to be lying to themselves or to us. Like, We all know how that feels if you've been in this work and it's not helpful. But on the flip side, we have to be willing to do that for us. Um, And it's a journey. And I think, you know, Chelsea, your your work of nourishment and talking about what that looks like and how important that is. And and I, I just I love it because it's just so there's something so beautifully every day about what you share of like, this is a way to live. This is a way to be. And your nourishment centered work has truly transformed my life um, and has been a major part of my own healing journey. And the stress that I incurred from this work also struggling with disordered eating. You and I have talked a lot about that. Like your work gave me permission to take care of myself, to eat. (laughs) And I, I, I can't thank you enough. Like that changed my life. And when we're talking about resiliency, this nourishment piece has to be part of it, right? And nourishing in our relationships, nourishing in our emotions, nourishing in our food, our sleep, our movement. Because if you think about something that is buoyant and can bounce back, there has to be this, there has to be a certain quality. Brittle things do not bounce back, they break. And so the more brittle that we are and dried and depleted and sucked out, when we get impacted, we're going to shatter. And so that's why, yes, we can talk about resiliency and that's important and we have to practice, 
But I love, love, love your lens of nourishment because that's what we're doing is we're infusing ourselves with the substances we need to live life's roller coaster well, to have the tools, the resources, the building blocks. If we don't have that, we don't have the capacity to be resilient. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can begin to look at our lives through that lens of nourishment, which you help us do is to say, okay, I'm breath work. It's not just breathing and loving my, it's, it's taking a moment to remind myself that I have what I need. I have the oxygen. I have the space. I have the time to feed myself enough and to feed myself well, to soak up the morning sun, to walk in the, in the woods and touch a tree. Like all of those are ways that we are infusing ourselves with nourishment and I think from a service provider perspective, from a perfectionist fixer perspective, we have to be willing to accept that we need that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're not able to just take hit after hit after hit after hit and still bounce back. We want to do that. But when we get honest with ourselves and we say, okay, I'm taking hit after hit after hit. And yeah, you can take hits. We're not asking how many hits can you take. <laughs> We're asking how how f- are you bouncing back to your fullness? Yeah. Are you you at your full self? Because we don't just need someone who will come and save the day. We don't just need someone who will, you know, drive the whole crew to soccer practice and ballet and gymnastics every day. That's awesome and a blessing but we need someone who is fully themselves because you, the listener, you are who we need. Mm -hmm. You at your essence, you at your core are a gift to the world. And if you are depleted, if you are crushed, if you are depressed and repressed and struggling, you deserve better. And we we want you, we want the fullness of you. And that's part of this journey is to say, I'm actually not at my best when I am the most spent. Yeah. I'm not giving my best when I am my most depleted. I am my most valuable. I am my most, I am of the most service when I am fully alive. And in order to do that, I need to rest. I need to eat. I need to breathe. I need to process my beliefs and emotions. I need to stay connected. And I think when we do that, we're going to see people come alive in ways that they need and ways that we need. And I just could cry thinking about a world full of people that are fully alive like that. Mm. People that are honest and healed and whole. Mm. Um, and I, I want that. I want that for my colleagues. I want that for our, my clients. You know, I want that for the people that are serving. I want that for parents. God, I would give anything for my parents to be their utmost best selves, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. I just want to add one one thing that you actually said to me in my DMs. Um, I had talked about my journey through kind of like healing my relationship with hard work. 
And one of the things that you said to me was like, thank you for sharing your process because it takes bravery. And especially on things like Instagram or just social media, um, you know, people tend to to not share until it's been done completely, which is okay. That Maybe that's a boundary for some people. Um, but you had said, thank you for reminding us how we're not only valuable when we're final. And I think a lot of us think that we don't have value to offer or we shouldn't even share at all, you know, whether it's online or just with your friends and family until you have it all figured out. And I think Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add that to just everything that you just said, which was so incredibly (laughs) beautifully said. And thank you for everything that you mentioned about me and House of Nourishment as well. It's such a received and beautiful reflection. It's, you know, I've been doing House of Nourishment for years and it's evolved a lot over those years. But in the past year, especially, I've really started to kind of like feel myself pull away or peel away from like the wellness that I once knew, which was like nutrition. Um, I mean, even some of the nervous system stuff that felt so like robotic and scientific. And I think it's all important. It's all important. And I think that I had gone in so deep that I was like at the bottom of the pail, like, okay, now what? Mm. And I had forgotten exactly what you said. I had forgotten that the whole point of diving into wellness, of sharing wellness with other people was to get myself back, to get myself back. Mm. (laughs) That's what it was. It was to get myself really that like younger version of me or the essence of who I really knew I was, which was this like joyful, like giggly, happy, laughing, blah, blah, blah version of Chelsea. And it was like, I had, I had dove so deep into all the nutrition podcasts and biohacking and all these things. And then I was like, wait, where's what else? Like what else is there? You know? And it was like, oh my gosh, I was forgetting the joy piece. And I, I came to realize over this last year, I would really almost say even these last like six, eight months, um, how uninterested I have been in the nitty gritty, the science, the like nutrition side of things. And I'm just so much more devoted now and interested in how can we bring in more joy into our lives? How can Mm -hmm. we feel good in our life? How? How do we do that? And I'm in the, in the process of figuring that out. I feel like I've, I feel like that is something that I've become really good at to the point where sometimes it's, confusing how to now show up online because <laughs> I'm like all I want to show is just like flowers and horses <laughs> and and I'll be honest too like in moments where I've shared this side of things which I actually now feel like are just as important if not more important than all the rest you know joy and like enjoying your life is a nutrient this is mm-hmm. nutrition that we need. Yeah. And it's yes. oftentimes the biggest piece we're missing. 
that like yes. childlike joy that we no longer experience as adults. Like how mm-hmm. do we anchor that back in or how do we just let it out again? Cause it's still there. It's deep down, yeah. but it's still there. Right. And yes. I've, I've shared from that space and I've had people message me, um, you know, things like, Oh, must be nice or not. Everyone can live like that or enjoy it while you can, or, you know, these different things, which of course, you know, in the moment, honestly, I felt like, Oh, I'm hurting people by posting this. I'll just, I'm going to stop posting these kinds of things Mm -hmm. because it makes people feel bad about their life. But then of course, after time, I, I realized very similarly to how you were talking about coming home from your work and, you know, dealing with some really hard shit at work and then coming home or going wherever you were and people laughing, seeing people joyful and being like, what's wrong with you people? You know, like must yeah. be nice. That kind right. of, and I've been there too. Like I've totally been there. I was such in a victim mindset, a helpless mindset in mm-hmm. a lot of my life. And especially as a teenager and, and like a young adult. I carried this like identity of like, you wouldn't understand. Like I have it mm-hmm. harder than you. Um, yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. so hard for me. You like, mm-hmm. guess how hard it is for me. Let me tell you, you know, like this identity I carried so heavily. And, and so I've realized like messages like that actually, I think are the reason to show up with joy. Yes. Because because I know that that is a projection of the pain and the separation from joy that some of these people feel and probably rightfully so. They're probably dealing with hard mm-hmm. things in their life and I have a lot of compassion for that and I don't know what they are, but you know, like we've said, life's hard. Yeah. But I think House of Nourishment is sort of evolving into at least right now being a space that can remind you to reconnect with that joy, mm-hmm. that happiness, that peace, that space, that like spaciousness. Even if you don't live on a ranch, of course, not everyone will, not everyone wants to, but just reminded that there's like this spaciousness in life that we can cultivate. Yes. And so anyways, I just really appreciate you sharing all of that and, and reminding me to how important that peace is in our life. Um, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's, it's the people in my life that, that were those joyful people. I, I needed them. It was a, it was painful. It was, there was, there was some friction there, but I needed that friction to, to pull me back, right. To kind of wake me up. I needed to hit up against something. And, um, I think, you sharing these things and showing what's possible. That's the other side of healing, trauma. Part of that is restoring autonomy. The other side is giving your brain a new experience. Mm-hmm. And to have, to, to see something that's possible, to see, okay, where she found joy what's around her, how can I find joy what's around me? I just think, yeah, it is. It's it's beautiful work. It's not less than. And I will spend a lot of my life making up for the years that I thought it was less than. Totally. 
Okay, I had like so many other things I wanted to talk to you about. We didn't even get into human trafficking, which is like what I thought we would spend half of the time talking about. I know, but I, think I know. That's okay. I feel like we covered so much ground and we talked about so many things like spontaneously in the moment. And I think I think that was what was meant to come through today. So I'm just so grateful to have you here, Krista. You are so amazing at speaking and putting to words like these bigger concepts while also like empowering people at the same time. It's just a gift to be in your presence and hear hear your perspective. So thank you so much for joining me on the House of Nourishment podcast today. Thank you, Chelsea. I feel the same about you. And um, I'm grateful to have an Instagram friend that is just <laughs> pure and good through and through. And so, yeah, I really loved just chatting with you and sharing my heart. And I'm grateful for your voice in the space. You mentioned that you want this this podcast to be a place for perspective and nuance. And I think I think we did that. I think yeah. we got that today. I think so too. Yeah. Can you share where people can find you and how they can work with you? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at good underscore sustained or goodsustained.com. And I work with individuals. I do one-on-one health coaching. So if you are a service provider, I would love to work with you. If you are not, still hit me up. I would love to work with you too. But I love, <laughs> love, love serving people in this space. Um, and we do a six-month one-on-one health coaching program. And it is my favorite thing because we start off talking about just like lifestyle things. But again, because our actions are rooted in our beliefs very quickly, we start getting to people's beliefs systems. And I've seen people do the most, I just have the most incredible transformations to wake up to patterns that have been in their life for years. And all we did was talk about what they were having for breakfast. Like it's just been amazing. So um, I do that for individuals. And then for organizations, I host workshops, I do consulting and do events and things like that. So um, yeah, hit me up, send me a DM. I am not a huge fan of social media because I like community and connection and I don't just like putting out content and like showing my face and um, trying to be like an influencer, but I want to meet you. So yes, if you are listening and this is your field, you have a question, please, please, please. I'd love to connect. So that's me. Thanks. Yay. Thank you so much, Krista. And everyone else, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.